All right, the book of Second Peter this morning, the book of Second Peter. It's a big day for us. We're starting a new book today. That's a big deal for us because usually when we start a new book, that means uh, we're going to be in there for a while. But honestly, this one shouldn't take that long. It's it's not that uh, it's not that big of a book. But I think there's some important stuff for us. It's a often overlooked book. Uh, people talk about First Peter, and we'll we'll uh, preach First Peter a lot. But Second Peter uh, gets left out. But that's not going to be us. We're going to cover this, and I think there's a lot. Uh, a lot for us this morning. These Both these books are written uh, by Peter, obviously, but they're written for different reasons, and they'll have kind of a different feel to them. So uh, we spent so long in First Peter, we kind of got the feel and the rhythm for that book, and now as we move into Second Peter, we'll realize uh, that, that it's got the same purpose, which is namely that this world is not all there is. But the way Peter's going to talk about it and the way Peter's going to get there, his purpose for writing is just a little bit uh, different. He's not so much the apostle warning these churches about what is to come. He's actually now a little bit older. We don't know. This could be anywhere from 10 years later to probably two to three years later than the, uh, than the last one. But he's got a little bit more urgency uh, in this book. And we'll, we'll cover a, a little bit as to why that is the case as we go on. And here's what I want to do today. I'm actually going to start in verse 12 of chapter 1 and let that serve as our introduction to the book. And then we'll continue on through the rest of uh, the first half of chapter 1. And we'll, we'll talk about what's there. That's the roadmap uh, for the day. So Second Peter chapter 1 verse 12, let this serve to introduce us to the text. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. We'll talk about what those qualities are here in a few minutes. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort, so that after my departure you may be able to may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter lays out here in this little paragraph why he's writing to these churches. Uh, now, we don't know specifically what churches, but our assumption is, because he says uh, that he's writing a second time. Our second is that this is just kind of the sequel to First Peter, and he's writing to these same churches. Uh, that's our best guess. He's writing to these same, church, these same churches a few years later, uh, and, and we'll see what prompted the letter as we go through it. But we're not really going to get into that too much today. Today, we simply need to see Peter's words here. He has a heightened urgency. He says that soon he will be putting off his body. That's his way of saying he's going to die soon. That's his way of saying he doesn't have much longer. Peter is writing from jail. He knows that there's only one way out of this jail. Unless, unless God intervenes and there's some earthquake or the chains fall off, the only way Peter is getting out of this jail is if he is dead. He is, uh, uh, he is assigned a, a cell. Uh, he's been told that he's going to die. He's going to be martyred. Tradition holds that he was uh, crucified upside down. That likely happened within a year or so of the writing of this letter, and he knew it was coming. He knew he was going to be martyred. And he knows that he doesn't have long to talk. He is a dead man walking, awaiting this execution. So that's enough of a heightened reason for us to be like, okay, well, what does Peter have to say here? If he's got that close before death, then his words are probably chosen very carefully. And his aim in this letter, he wants to remind them of truth that they already know. So let me ask you, 
if you know that you are just weeks, months away from dying, you know that your ability to communicate with people as the chief apostle, as the head honcho, as the head follower of Jesus, you know that you're probably going to die soon for following Jesus. Are you going to write a letter to people that says, I just want to tell you what you already know? That doesn't line up with kind of how we determine what's important, right? You would think Peter would have, here's a list of things that I want to make sure I communicate to you and I've, I haven't said them yet. Let me tell you all these things about Jesus that, that, that aren't in you know, Luke's gospel. Don't make it into Luke's gospel. Don't make it into the, the, the account by Matthew. Let me tell you about all these things and these things that I saw and what you should be doing and how powerful I am to implore you to do these things. He doesn't do any of that. He's reminding them of a truth they already know. I could spend the whole morning right here just talking about this. I'm going to let Peter's words kind of suffice for us this morning, but, but I could spend all morning talking about this because here's the deal. We have a terrible memory. We have a terrible memory. We are so easily distracted. We so easily move on to the next thing. Our culture is built on not, not lingering in one, one powerful truth, but casually learning that truth or that new thing and then moving to the next and the next and the next and the next. The speed at which we go to the next thing is as quick as that we can, we can go through our timeline on our social media. We, we can cover 15 topics with one swipe of the finger. And as quickly as we can, we can take in that information, we move on to the next thing. We are so easily distracted. A new movie comes out, a new album, a funny commercial, a bad day, whiny kids, bad day at work, a good day at work, a big vacation, something super uh, exciting, bills, chores, sports, big and small, good and bad, literally anything can distract us from Jesus. It doesn't take much. Our minds and our hearts are fickle things. Even whenever we know the depth of the truth that we study about Jesus, our hearts are fickle things and we must constantly be reminded of the goodness and grace of God in our lives because we will forget it. We will forget it. Oftentimes, whenever you first kind of recognize this grace and what God has done, uh, many of you would remember, will remember this. Whenever you first became a Christian, you first started following Jesus, the, the thoughts of Jesus and of Scripture kind of consumed your daily walk. You were, you were what we would say, on fire for Jesus, and you were constantly just like on this emotional high. And then something kind of happens in life where it just wears you down and pulls you back. We're so easily distracted we need to constantly be reminded of the goodness and the grace of god in our lives because we will forget it we'll see that what has got uh, got peter all riled up and wanting to remind these churches of the goodness and the grace of god what has got peter fired up is some bad teaching that is starting to kind of infiltrate the ranks we'll we'll get to that but but the, the, the reality is it could be anything that distracts us from Jesus. 
And so what we need to figure out is what is it that Peter is writing to remind these churches about? He says, I'm writing to remind you of these things. What are these things that he's writing to remind us of? So let's go back to the beginning of chapter 1 now. And I think you're going to see some stuff that, that might just blow your mind. And I think, well, if you'll hang with me, I think we'll, we'll, we'll change the way a lot of you view the way that the Christian life works. So Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, very first verse Simeon Peter, or Simon Peter, depending on your translation there, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of, of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So, Seems like a simple enough introduction, right? If you've read the Bible enough, you know that Paul introduces a lot of his letters called epistles. Same kind of way, just saying, hey, I'm writing this, may grace be with you. Kind of lead off, kind of ease your way into uh, the letters. It's not just Peter's opening, though. I think there's a lot we can glean from what Peter says just in these first few verses. I want you to think, uh, I want you to, you to think with me about how differently this opening can go. Now he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think it's interesting that Peter opens that way because I want you to think about how Peter could have opened. This is Peter, chief apostle. Peter, the one that Jesus calls the rock. Peter, the one that was preaching at Pentecost when well over 3,000 people got saved. Peter, the one who was once imprisoned for preaching the gospel in the book of Acts and refused to back down. It's Peter. It is the guy, the man, the one that Jesus entrusts with so much. This is Peter. He could have started that way. He could have started like, this is the guy with, with the, that had his church grow by 3,000 overnight. So listen to me. If it's me, that's probably where I lead. That's probably where I go. That's probably how I try to get you to listen to me, right? What, what, what I probably say is, I'm the guy that grew his church by over 3,000 overnight. You probably want me to speak at your conference. You probably want to listen to what I have to say. I'm Peter, the one that has bruises on his wrist from the chains that I wore before they miraculously fell off and I walked out of jail. That's the guy I want to invite to come talk about the persecuted church. That's the guy that I want to have and put on a platform wherever I can. Peter could have led with any of those things. I'm a guy who used to be called Simon, but Jesus changed my name to Peter because I'm the rock. That would be a pretty good way to lead off on a letter, right? If you want people to listen to you, that's a pretty good one. Yet how does he lead? He identifies himself as a servant first, an apostle second, and then he says to those that have obtained a faith of equal standing with Hours. And then he goes on to describe how they obtained that equal standing through the grace, the, the righteousness and the grace of Jesus Christ. That's how they obtained that equal standing. That's incredible. He's writing to these churches that are full of people just like me and just like you. 
People that are enduring suffering, no doubt, but people that are struggling with sin, that are working through things that they don't really understand, and they are struggling. And how does Peter see them? How does he want them to see him as equals, as the same? As the same standing as Peter. He says, in Jesus, we are one in the same. No hierarchies here. Nothing is different here. Listen, this is one of the the beautiful truths of Scripture. We are all saints in Jesus. All of us. There aren't like the elite Christians and then the not so elite Christians. There aren't those that are like the, 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 the super great ones that have it all figured out and then just the rest of us. There aren't even apostles and then everybody else. The chief apostle says, you have obtained a, a, a standing equal with ours. There's no tiered system. In Jesus, you don't just get a little bit of Jesus. You get all of Jesus. But do you know how else Peter could have led this letter? Peter, the one who abandoned Jesus in his darkest hour. Peter, the one who couldn't even stand up to a teenage girl whenever she said that I knew Jesus. Peter, who who couldn't even stay awake for an hour when Jesus prayed right before he died, even though he asked me to. Peter, the one who went back to fishing after the resurrection because I was so defeated and did not feel worthy to be his disciple. He could have started the letter that way too. Both of those would have been completely accurate and totally fair. But he doesn't lead that way either. He says, I'm Peter, co-heir of the grace of God with you. We all stand at the foot of the cross. We all desperately need grace. We are all the same unworthy recipients of grace. But when we receive that grace... There are no second-class citizens. In our world, there's a tendency to pick one of those two things to lead with. In our world, there's a tendency to lead with one or the others. Either you lead with your best attributes, you lead with your most flattering stories, your most celebrated moments, your most noteworthy achievements, and you do so to claim some sense of power, authority, standing, or otherwise establish yourself as something that you probably know you aren't completely. That's social media at its peak. We lead with our best moments and our highlights. Our curated, our curated photos and our, and our edited moments in life. We, we, we put all that out there to impress everyone. I'm convinced, honestly, we put it out there to impress ourselves. Because we're not all that impressed with our lives. But if we can curate our timeline just right, then maybe we, 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 we aren't as bad as we think we are. And so we put forth the gradios and the highlights and we hide the rest. Or, some of you can't relate to that at all. Because your tendency is that you stand up and you lead with your failures at every chance that you get. You talk about how insufficient you are. You lead with your shame. You define yourself by your lowest moment, your most difficult challenges. Your greatest failures, your most noteworthy sins. In our minds, in your mind, you are the worst version of yourself. You can't get past what you've done, how you failed, 
and how that's going to define you for the rest of your life. Peter's opening line erases both of those. You are not your best moments and you are not your worst. In Christ, that changes. You are not defined by what you have done, good or bad. You are defined on the life of Jesus. You think you're a good person, a rule follower, better than most? I mean, if you're honest, you're not going to say that out loud because, hey, you're better than most. So you're not going to say that you're better than most. But is that you? Do you feel like, hey, I've followed the rules. I've done it right. I'm better than the average Joe. I'm a pretty good guy. It doesn't matter. You think you're a failure, full of shame, no value to anyone, can't get past your sin? That doesn't matter either. Neither one of those define you. In Christ, we have all obtained equal standing. You, me, the Apostle Peter, the chief of sinners, the Apostle Paul, all equal standing under the blood of Jesus. That should blow your mind. Because there is absolutely nothing that says you deserve that. That is the grace of God alone. That's probably enough good news for us this morning. We could close it up, sing our song, but I'm going to keep on going. Because I think what Peter says after he goes from there is important for us this morning too. So let's read the next section and see what it is that he has to say. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And I think your first reading of this, it might, it might kind of confuse you a little bit. It used to confuse me. Confused me a lot. Until I read it a little more closely. He says... His divine power, this is Jesus, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with Virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, it's easy to read that and think, okay, here's what Peter's saying. He's saying it's time for you to be good. If Jesus loves you, it's time for you to be good. You've got to earn what you've been given. It's time to step up to the plate. If that's what you get when you read this, then you've completely misunderstood what Peter is trying to tell you here. That gets it all backwards. This year for Christmas or right after Christmas, Abby got, uh, got a new cookbook, um, she didn't know she was going to be in this sermon, so this is a surprise to her. But she got a, she got a new cook, cookbook. It's the, the Magnolia cookbook. Anybody got this thing, the, the Joanna Gaines cookbook? Anybody? No? All right. Well, go to Abby. She can help you out. Um, but she got, she got this cookbook, and this was right after Christmas whenever she was at home, not at school. And so she was like, hey, I got all kinds of stuff that I want to make. I need you to get me all these different ingredients. And first up was called Mom's Bulgogi with a cucumber kimchi salad anybody ever had that me neither. oh so we got a so some some folks have had it you know what in the world this is i had no idea no clue 
I was like, what is a bulgogi salad? That sounds like something I don't want to, it's not even a salad, is it? I don't even, see, mom's just bulgogi. What, what is that? I don't know. I have no clue. That sounds like an animal I don't want to eat. Um, I said, all right, fine. She finds out I'm going to the store. She says, get me these ingredients, whole, whole list of, of ingredients, and, and sends me that picture right there, just like that. So what that means is I'm walking through, I use Walmart or Food City, I'm walking through and I'm like having to zoom in my phone like six times so that I can read what is on there and go through this list of ingredients. And uh, some of them are normal, some of them not so much. Brown sugar, soy sauce, sesame oil, gochugaru, anybody know what that is? Walmart doesn't carry it. In case you're wondering, they don't have it. It's Korean red pepper flakes. And so I was like, well, I got red pepper flakes. I don't, they're not Korean, but maybe they'll work. So we'll use those and see how uh, that goes. Salt, rice vinegar, garlic cloves, like all this different stuff. Some of that we had on hand. Some of it we didn't. Some of it Walmart carried. Some of it they did not. Uh, so, so we had to improvise a bit and kind of substitute here and substitute there. Um, it's just kind of how it is. We didn't get the ribeye that you're supposed to use. I was comforted whenever I saw that ribeye was an ingredient. I was like, but we're not getting ribeye because we're not doing that. So we got some flank steak instead and Abby put it all together. And honestly, she did a really good job. It was really good. She did the cucumber salad. She did all of it. But here's the thing. I have no idea if it tasted like it was supposed to. No clue. You know why? Because I have no idea what bulgogi is. None at all. It was good. But I don't know what it was supposed to taste like, which I guess if you're going to be judged for how, how you do, that's a good way to do it. Like, like you're, you're judged for, on the basis of, we have no idea whether this is, this is how you're supposed to do it or not. That's, that's pretty good if you're going to be judged. Um, but as far as we're concerned, it tastes good, so you did well. That's how a lot of us approach Christianity. That's how a lot of us approach what it means to follow Jesus. We're guessing on the ingredients. We don't even have the cookbook. We're just going on a recipe from memory, a recipe that's maybe been handed down from generation to generation, maybe kind of been gleaned as you've gone to church long enough of this is what makes a good Christian. And somewhere along the way, things get hard and we convince ourselves that we aren't the problem. We just don't have the right ingredients. We just don't have the things that we need in order to be what God has called us to be. We're not sure about the recipe, but we're sure we don't have all of it. And so we're just kind of guessing, throwing something together. If we had the right ingredients, we could do it. If we had all we needed, we could do it. But without it, we're pretty hopeless. But it's not our fault, though. We just didn't have what we needed. For a lot of you, this describes your Christian walk. You want to be a good, godly person. You really do. You honestly want to. You just keep running into all these ingredients that you don't have on hand. You keep running into all these things that you, that you just don't have. It doesn't seem like Walmart carries them either. You can't find them anywhere. You didn't have the time. You don't have the energy. You don't have the upbringing, the mentor, the right Bible, the brains, the time, the money, the right husband, the right wife, the right kids. You don't have a husband or a wife at all. You don't have the right temperament. When it comes down to it, nobody taught you how to be a chef anyway. So how are you supposed to put all this together and make it be what it's supposed to be? That's the Christian life for a lot of us. You really want, you really want it to be good. You just don't have everything that you need. We're no good at the Christian life. 
And we've got a list of reasons why we come up short. But Peter doesn't see it that way at all. Verse 3 again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. All things for life and godliness. All things. There is nothing you lack. Nothing. In Christ, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing you lack. You are not a person in need. There is nothing that has been withheld. There is nothing the store doesn't carry. In Christ, we have it all. So what does this mean? This means, for one, as Christians, we, we shouldn't have the can't help it. You know what I'm talking about? The, the, the I, I can't help it, God. This is the spouse you gave me, and this is the only way to deal with them. I can't help it, God. This is the kids you gave me. What else am I supposed to do? I can't help it, God. This is just something that, this is just my cross I have to bear, as though the sins you keep doing are the cross you have to bear. That's nonsense. You shouldn't have the can't help it. You have all you need for life and godliness. You shouldn't have the, if I only had this, things would be better. Whatever it is that you think you need to be more like Christ, God has already supplied it. You have it. Now that is a reassuring promise. But it is also not entirely good news for me. Because if that's the case, it takes away my security blanket. It takes away my, my, uh, my, my bush. You, you remember Adam and Eve after they sin and God comes for them? What do they do? They run and hide. Right? If I have all that I need for godliness, I don't have anything to hide behind anymore. I'm exposed here. I've just had my reasons for why I should be allowed to sin taken from me. And the sin never gets a free pass. So let's read it again, and then let's just keep going just a little bit. Let's add a little bit to it and see how Peter fleshes this out. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So he goes on to say that we've been given everything we need to become partakers of the divine nature. Now that sounds super mystical and kind of supernatural stuff. It sounds, sounds like this all ethereal kind of thing. But what Peter is trying to say is that uh, through the promises of God, we are able to not become God, but instead become like God. We become more godly as we pursue Him. We, in some sense, take on part of the divine nature as we become like Him. In some sense, as we, as we change and alter and follow Him and adjust to Him and become like Him, we, we take on some of that essence. Let's just keep going. And he says, for this very reason. So what reason? Because we've been given all that we need, because we become more like Christ and take on that divine nature, for that reason, make every effort to supplement your faith 
with virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter goes on to list all these qualities. I don't think the order that he gives us these qualities are particularly uh, important. I'm not even going to dwell on the specific deeds that he talks about here. I want to talk just a little bit more generally. The list shows what it looks like as we become more and more like Christ. And he encourages, encourages us. He says, make every effort to pursue all of these things. That we would supplement our already existent faith with virtue. Now this is, the, the, this is where things kind of get hairy, right? This is where we can kind of lose things just a little bit. Because I want you to see how this works. The easy question is to say, make every effort. That doesn't sound very much like grace. That sounds very much like works-based righteousness. But if that's how you take this, and that's how I probably would have taken it for a long time, if that's how you take this, then you're going to try to earn all of these things that Jesus has laid out there. And you're going to feel like the works are where the, 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 the power is. But that's not what Peter says at all. You see, he says the faith already existed. The faith is already there. Supplement the faith. God has given you what you need. And it says that we are nearsighted because we forgot what we've been forgiven of. And this is how it all kind of ties together. So hang with me here. He's reflecting on the grace of, of on, on, on what the grace of God should produce in our life. This is how the gospel works. God saves us in his power. His power causes us to be born again. We repent and turn from our sins. And as we begin this new walk, this new life, we pursue these things that Peter lays out. We supplement our already existent faith with virtue that is non-existent. Why do we do that? Because when we exercise these virtues, it keeps us from being ineffective and unfruitful. You see, he lays out all these things that you have already been given in Christ. And then he says, because you have been given all of these things, godliness, or everything you need for life and godliness and, uh, and, and have, have, are given to be partakers of the divine nature, because you have all these things, supplement that faith now and go and do these other things. The virtues, the good deeds he lays out here are not for our salvation. They are for our benefit. That is a key turn. They are the things that God uses to work his grace into our lives. They keep us, these virtues keep us from living lives that are mediocre, ho-hum lives that never see God work from living lives that are ineffective and unfruitful. And why would they be ineffective and unfruitful? Because we aren't pursuing the lives that God has called us to pursue at that point. Do you see how this works together? The grace comes first, the good works follow, and then the grace of God's working in our lives follows the good works. 
It's the cycle. So grace first, good works follow. God uses those good works that you do to produce grace in your life again. And then it just keeps on going. It's like a, it's like a, a flywheel or an engine down the track. The faster it gets going, it just kind of keeps on going further and further and faster and faster. The more you supplement, the more you add these good works and these virtues, the more you will see God's grace in your life. It goes and it goes and it goes. But that's only if you're operating out of the understanding that the faith is already there. What you need has already been given to you. You didn't create the faith. You didn't create all of these things. You are using the good works to supplement what is there. And you grow in the grace of God as you do the good works. The more good you do, the more you get to see God work. That's a pretty good promise to hang on to this morning. Not for your salvation, but for your sanctification. And not just in your own life, but in the lives of others. The more good you do, the more you get to see God work. But that goodness and that work is rooted in the grace of God. Not for your righteousness, but for your joy as you watch God work around you and in you. And this is what verse 9 is about. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I don't know how many of you guys know that I wear, uh, I wear, I wear contacts. Uh, a lot of you don't because I never wear my glasses because I hate wearing glasses. But I'm extremely nearsighted. If I did not have my contacts in, the only thing I could see standing up here is those lights. I would have no idea who any of you are. I would just be preaching to a bunch of like blurry blobs. I would have no clue who any of you are. I couldn't see a thing. If I, wanted to know how, if I wanted to know who you were, I would have to get very uncomfortably close to you to figure out who it was that I was talking to. Uh, Peter says that, that if you don't follow in these good works, you're kind of like that. You're, you're, you're kind of like the person who looks out and can't, can't see what what he needs to see. There's something there, but you can't make it out. It's all kind of a, a blur. You can't see far enough in the past as to who you were and what you've been forgiven of. Now, you remember you're not who you were, but it's all kind of a blur. It all kind of blends together. It's no big deal. All that matters is who I am now. But Peter says that's not the best way to, to see it. No, we don't lead with our worst moments, but we remember our worst moments. And we remember how we have been saved from them and how we have been redeemed from who we were. You can imagine Peter saying, I, I, I still remember the day that I, that I walked out and abandoned Jesus. That's not who I am anymore by the grace of God, but I remember it. I see it. And because I see it, I know how much I need the grace of God. Some of you are so nearsighted, you think that you're so great now because you forgot all the things that you've been forgiven of. And Peter says, don't be like that. Be crystal clear on the sins of your past and what Jesus has redeemed you from. It should be like after you get, Emily used to be like even worse than I am, which I can't imagine how that's possible. She used to be even worse than I was with glasses and needing glasses. She got LASIK, now she can see fine, everything is crystal clear. That's kind of what we should be as Christians. We should be able to look back and, and, and through the correction of what the gospel gives us, crystal clear evidence of how far God has brought us. 
And we should never lose sight of that. It keeps us from forgetting. It keeps us from walking away and thinking that we're something that we're not. And then this is why Peter says he's writing. To remind us of this. Verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are not making our entrance to heaven sure, which is what he says there, by doing these things. That's not what Peter is trying to say. I've heard that verse used that way all my life. Make your calling and election sure. How do you make your election sure? How do you sure up your place in heaven? Do the good deeds. No, absolutely not. That is a lie from the devil. That is not what Peter is saying. He's not saying make your, you know, sure up your place in heaven by doing these things. What he's saying is make your own heart certain. Clarify these things in your own heart. Reminding that we are indeed recipients of the grace that we have been given. How do we know we have been given this grace? Because without grace, we would have no self-control, godliness, brotherly affection, love, or steadfastness. We would be wishy-washy, self-focused, self-driven, undisciplined people. But where you see love increasing, where you see brotherly affection increasing, where you see these things growing, where you see your self-control growing, where you see these things happening, this is what we would call evidences of grace. It's not a term that we use a lot in Christianity anymore, but it's one that the old preachers used to use all the time. It would be an evidence of God's grace in your life. So how can you be sure that God has wrought something in your life? You have evidence that he is doing something in you and through you you are growing in grace peter says don't open yourself up to the prison of doubting god's grace in your life pursue these things and as you do know that god has given you all that you need to obtain it and as you do this be comforted that god's grace is indeed present in your life So Peter writes all of this to remind us and to say, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you were. And as you remember these things and you look back on the grace that you have been given and you see the faith that you have in Christ, supplement that with these good works because when you do that, then you will see the work of God in your own life and in the work of others. Some of you have, have no story, no testimony about how God has worked in your life or how God has worked in the lives of, of those around you because, quite frankly, you haven't pursued any of this stuff. You're like sitting back and just waiting for something amazing to happen. Like you're just like sitting there watching like, okay, do something great, God. Oh, you didn't do something great? You must not be there. And what Peter says is, no, you've got to pursue these things, do these things, and as you do these things, you will see how God will work in all of them. Not to obtain your salvation, but to better see God's grace and the way it works in your life. So what are the evidences of grace in your life? Where have you sought to follow God and pursue these good deeds? Where have you failed in these things? If you have succeeded, that is the grace of God. 
If you have failed, know that the grace of God is there for us too. This is why Peter is writing this letter, to remind us of these things. That God's grace is sufficient, it is enough, and that we have all we need for godliness. But the caveat to all of that is that is in Christ. You do not have all you need if you do not have Jesus. You know, the, 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 the famous equation, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the case. If we've got Jesus, we have all we need. We don't need to add anything to that. But apart from Jesus, there is nothing, nothing that helps us. So this morning, my encouragement to you is to pursue these things that Peter lays out here. I would encourage you to spend some time walking through each of these things. Where does self-control need to increase in your life? Where does uh, brotherly affection and love need to increase in your life? Where do these things need to, 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 to show themselves more? And then realize God has given you what you need for these. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, it is our confession that we too easily forget the gospel, that we are indeed a nearsighted people, that we are indeed a people that have forgotten the grace we have been given, and that too often we strive in our own works to do our own thing to somehow uh, assure our entrance into heaven through doing stuff that we think impresses Father, it's our confession that that is not what you have called us to. That that is, an actively, uh, that is actively not trusting in the goodness of what you have given to us. So Father, this morning I pray that you would correct our eyesight. Remind us of who we were and what, what you have redeemed us from. And help us to pursue these things. God, I pray that you would help us to see your grace at work and that our lives would be transformed by it it's in christ's name we pray amen